turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, as you saw in the video uh, that was just played before you, uh, we embark on a new series, a five-week series that we've entitled The Five Solas. 2017 marks the 500th anniversary uh, where Martin Luther in Germany nailed 95 concerns or challenges against the church. And now in the year 2017, the question is, is does the Reformation really matter? As an evangelical church, we are a church that does not uh, reside under the authority of a pope. It does not reside under the authority of uh, official church doctrine or teaching. Uh, and so we have been radically changed by that experience, by that historical event 500 years ago. The question is, is the Reformation still alive and well today? And as the pastors got together and thought, we thought it was important because it's a part of our lineage, our bloodline, that we would take a couple weeks in the summer uh, to dedicate our time and attention uh, to this historic event. But to look at it not just in the historical side and give you a history lesson, but to look at it from a very present day standpoint, to ask the question, are we still needing Reformation today? And what does that look like? Are the same battles that we fought as the church uh, 500 years ago, the battles we're fighting today? And there's some truth that, yes, there are still some of the same battles, but we're going to learn about that there are some new ones that we have to fight as well today. Uh, I'm going to ask Lisa to, to prep a video just to give you, because some of you may not know what transpired 500 years ago. And we've got a, just a short video. We could spend weeks on the history of what took place through the lives of men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, different men, John Huss, John Whitcliffe, men who stood up against the authority of the church and proclaimed the gospel. We're here today because they rediscovered the gospel of the New Testament. About 1,500 years after Christ, the gospel had lost its way in the church. But these men, being faithful to the text, faithful to the calling of God, helped to rediscover and proclaim the gospel that was preached by the prophets, by the disciples, and by Jesus himself. And we got just a short video to show you a little bit about what we're talking about. In the 16th century, the church practice of indulgence had become corrupted. People were charging money in exchange for the forgiveness of sins. The leaders of the church were abusing God's gift of grace for profit. Meanwhile, a monk named Martin Luther, a theologian of the scriptures, was questioning his personal salvation. He struggled to understand the scripture in Romans 1, 16-17. Paul proclaims the good news of God's justice, saving us by his grace, not by what we have done. As he studied the passage, he first understood the gospel message that God forgives sins through faith. This new understanding contradicted what he saw practiced in the church. In 1517, he wrote these differences in 95 Theses, which challenged the church he loved to rethink their actions. This marked the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. This movement changed our views on justification, the authority of Scripture, in church leadership. People's views of God were no longer limited to fear and judgment, but expanded to see him as comforter and savior.
The Protestant Reformation has a huge um, implication to how we worship, to how we believe and understand the scriptures, and how we look at the church that we're a part of. But as we get into this series that we're going to address, we're going to do so under five headings. Five headings that became rallying cries, slogans for the reformers. Uh, each week, uh, a different campus pastor is going to be with you. We're doing, as we do every summer, uh, a round robin of preaching where we kind of shake everything up and the uh, churches kick their campus pastors out and send them off to the other campuses to see what's not only going on, but for you to hear uh, voices from the other campuses as well. And each week you're going to hear what is called one of the solas. The reformers came up with these slogans or these sayings that would help to do two things. First of all, to explain who they are and, and what they believe, and also to evaluate is the ministry, is the word that is being taught, being taught in a fruitful and faithful way. The five solas are, first of all, sola scriptura. We believe that scripture alone is our final authority. We believe in sola fide, that is, that we believe in faith alone as our means to salvation. Sola Christus is what I'll be talking about today, that salvation is through Christ alone. Sola gratia, through grace alone. And sola Deo gloria, for God's glory alone. And each week we're going to address one of these things. Now I want you to understand how we're going to do it. As we talked as campus pastors, there were four goals that we wanted to address. First of all, we wanted to address the historical side of things. This was an argument that happened 500 years ago. We want to address that. But we also want to recognize that there's theological things. This wasn't just the color of the carpeting that they were arguing about. It would split the Western church once and for all, and it wasn't something small. These were deep theological issues that had deep theological implications. But we also want you to recognize this wasn't just a theological battle between a bunch of big-headed professors. This came from the scriptures, and we want to show you uh, biblically where these truths, these solas, come from the scriptures. They come from the revelation of God himself. And then finally, we want it to be applicational. What are you going to use these solas for uh, as you leave this place today? So that's my aim, and I want to jump right into it. So turn in your Bibles, if you haven't yet, to Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at the heading of sola Christus in Christ alone. We read about Paul in Athens. In verse 16, we pick it up. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Just as a point of reference, Epicureans, they were the ones who indulged the flesh. They loved everything that made their bodies feel good. The Stoics said the flesh was bad. It was all spiritual. So Paul is talking to two very diverse group of people. He goes on, he says, that some said, speaking about Paul's preaching, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying... May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing 
except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we move and live and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and that he has given his uh, assurance to all by rising, uh, raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among them were, and I'm not even going to try to name some of these names, Dionysius and Arabigite and a woman by the name of Damaris and others with them. I pray that I haven't butchered their names too bad, but let me go ahead and pray. Father God, we ask that you would be preached today, that you would be proclaimed, and that we would recognize as Christians that we hold up one mantle, the mantle that carries the name Christ Jesus. I pray that it will impact and change the way we look at the world and the way we look at you and the way we look at our neighbors. In Christ's name we pray, amen. On September 23rd, 2001, the United States was experiencing a time of revival. Two weeks after the bombings and and terrorist attacks uh, of September 11th, record attendance had been seen throughout the churches in America. People were wondering, would this be the third great awakening of the American society? I was blown away with the amount of goodwill that was shown. Firemen and and policemen being shown the respect that they deserve. Neighbors helping out neighbors, seeking to do all they can to make each and every life a little better. I was even more excited when word came out that Yankee Stadium would be open on Sunday, the 23rd. And that it would not be for a ball game, but there would be standing room only for a prayer meeting. A prayer meeting at Yankee Stadium. Who was going to be the one who would lead it? Would it be a prominent leader of the Christian community? What pastor would rise and be the prophetic voice to a nation that needed to see God once again? My heart was broken when I learned that the masters of ceremonies would be no one else except the great priestess of the new wave of religion of America, Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey would lead this this group of people. And as you would look to the stage, and I've got a picture of it, you would think that there would be pastors of different denominations, but no. It would be all sorts of religions, even some obscure 
and crazy ones who would be given opportunities. Hindi and Muslim, Buddhist and Zoroastrian uh, priests would stand and give prayers to their gods. My hopes were dashed. Instead of hearing God being called down by men to speak and to move on our day in the name of the only name, Jesus Christ, every prayer was prayed to this multifaceted and multi-tiered God. I was blown away by a CNN correspondent, and I had to look up just as I remembered it in 2001 to look because I wanted to make sure I got it just right. The CNN correspondent who was doing the live telecast and covering the service said the following. He says, as I've watched the service today, I have been awestruck by two words that seem to be opposed to one another, yet are symbolic to what is the United States. Those two words are diversity and unity. Today we have seen, listen to what the CNN guy said in 2001. Today we have seen what we will one day see in heaven. You see, we saw so many faces from so many different races and different places and backgrounds. If he would have stopped there, he would have been biblical. But he went on. And so many different faiths. And yet they were all holding hands. They were united in one voice. And at times sharing tears together. Listen to what he says. Seeking the same God yet in their own way. He goes on and he says, The world saw on September 11th what a singular belief in God alone can do. Destroy. He says, if you believe in a God, and you only believe in one God, that brings destruction. He goes on, and he says, but seeing that through our many different faiths and the diversity of those faiths, that we can see love and charity, that we can reach out in our own way and find the same God reaching back to us in love and comfort in our time of need. I read that, and right away as I was studying, I thought of the bumper sticker that you see all the time that's now on your screen the coexist sign. And I thought about this is the world that we're living in. And this is an attack on sola Christus, that Christ alone is the way of salvation. Now, I want to, as we talked about earlier, there's a historical side to it. So what was sola Christus for the Reformation? Uh, write this down. There was the then when Martin Luther addressed the issue of sola Christus, what he was addressing was what I'd like to call the means of salvation. The means of salvation. During the Reformation, Luther becomes incensed. He goes on a journey to Rome, and he's excited. He's a priest. He loves the church, and he's going to go to the capital city of the church. And there he sees priests visiting brothels. He sees usury, money being taken away from the poor. He sees relics being uh, sold as ticketed items. And the currency of the day wasn't cash, but forgiveness of sins. Think of this. A, a brothel or a prostitute would, would offer her services and the priest would say, I can forgive you of sins. I can write you a certificate to get you or your friends out of purgatory. If you wanted to see the head of John the Baptist then you needed to pay for an indulgence so that you might one day have your sins 
forgiven. This would rise to an epic uh, level when John Tetzel was sent out by the church to raise funds for what is now St. Peter's Basilica. So anytime you watch the Vatican, you'll see the great cathedral, that's St. Peter's Basilica. It is to this day the largest single church building project in human history. Well, anytime a church needs to put money together to build a church, they do a capital campaign. And John Tetzel was the financial director for the capital campaign. And he went out throughout all of Europe and he put together a little motto. What he would do is he would put on a play as he came into the city. So he would come to Shabana and he would put on a play where people are dying in the flames of hell, burning. And he would speak about with vivid imagery, this is your family in hell. They're burning. And what you could do is you could change their fortune. What you could do is you could end their agony. Well, of course, everybody wanted to know, how could this be done? John, tell us. What is the way we can get our friends and family out of hell? I mean, what loving person wouldn't want to end the suffering and sorrow of a loved one in Hades? And he came up with a motto. What he would do is he would bring a coffin before the people. And the coffin became the offering basket when the offering was going to take place. And at the end of his big uh, drama show that he put on, he would say, as the coin in the coffin rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And more and more money came in. Why? Because if we can pay our way out of hell, then surely we should do all that we can to get our friends and family out of there. You see, Sola Christus was under attack. If we could pay to get people out of hell, then money was our savior, not Jesus Christ. And that's why the reformers address this with the motto, Sola Christus. It is in Christ alone. But there are some contemporary counterfeits that still ring true today with regards to Sola Christus. And you've probably heard these from friends or family. Maybe some have said, listen, yeah, you have to have Jesus to be saved, but it's Jesus and church attendance, right? I got to love Jesus, yes, but I got to make sure I'm at church on Sunday. Others would say it's Jesus plus baptism. Yeah, I've got to have Jesus, but I got to make sure I'm baptized or I got to make sure I take communion. That's how I get salvation. Others have said, well, it's Jesus and it's his mother Mary. I've got to have Mary, like at the wedding feast at Cana, just as they went through Mary to get to Jesus, so we've got to go through Mary to get to Jesus. So it's Jesus plus Mary. Another counterfeit that is preached is, and this one's a big one across all denominational lines, that yes, it's Jesus. I've got to believe in Jesus, but I have to do good works. I've got to make sure that the scale of my life has more good works on it than bad works. And so we have these counterfeits, and each of these counterfeits attack the very premise of this doctrinal belief, this theological uh, foundation we have, that Jesus Christ is Savior of all. In fact, James Montgomery Boyce put it this way, sola Christus means that Jesus has done it all, so that now no merit on the part of man, no merit of the saints, no works of ours performed either here or in the afterlife 
can add to the completed saving work that Jesus has done. In fact, any attempt to add to it is a perversion of the gospel and indeed no gospel at all. That was then. How about now? How about today? Yes, all of these still ring true, that there is questions of how does one get salvation. But I want you to understand today what was true in the book of Acts is true today. And that is how about today? Today the question is, who is the mediator of salvation? Who is the one that we go to to be saved? Who do we go to to receive eternal life? That was the problem on September 23rd. Oprah was leading a group of people that were attacking the very essence of sola Christus. It wasn't Christ alone in their opinion. It was whoever you put your faith and trust in, that's how you get to God. That's how you experience eternal life. Paul was in Athens, as our text says. He was preaching about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And some people heard it and were intrigued. So they gave him a place to speak. This is what they did. They loved to hear new ideas or new thoughts. And as he begins to speak, the background of the Areopagus is the pantheon of gods. Statues everywhere. Every god you could think of. Zeus, Apollo, Aphrodite, all the gods and goddesses. Uh, Historians tell us there were more than a thousand different deities that were represented. Now how is Paul going to preach the one and only Christ to a group of people that believe that there were many ways to get to God. This we need to address and ask the question today, what does the world say about Jesus? When it comes to Jesus, our world is no different than Paul's. And there are four things that our world says about Jesus that I think Paul's generation or culture said. You see, they don't hate Jesus. Jesus was going to be given a hearing in Paul's day. They weren't saying, get this garbage out of here. We don't want to hear anything about Jesus, as the Jewish leaders did when Jesus spoke. They were intrigued. You see, our world doesn't hate Jesus. Our world just wants to make sure Jesus stays in his proper place. Many will say, I like Jesus. Just as long as you don't say Jesus is the one and only. So what does the world do? Notice there are four things. Number one, they redefine Jesus as a prophet. Verse 22 and 23 in our text says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. The Athenians want to make sure they've got all their bases covered, and so they've created a statue with an inscription saying, we don't know who this is, but we want to make sure if if he's a god, we've got you covered, and we're going to worship, we're going to pay uh, offerings to you, we're going to take care of you. And Paul says, listen, I want to tell you about who that god is. And the Athenians are like, no problem. The more gods, the better. We like having gods here. And you see, just like in Paul's day, Our people, our neighbors, our friends say, listen, you want to add Jesus to the pantheon of gods? That's fine. That's good. Bring them on. The more, the merrier. But what we're going to see is, is that as long as Jesus is a small g God, you know what I'm saying there? A, A God that is not one and only, but one of many, then he'll be okay. 
It's the second that we tell somebody that we believe Jesus is the one and only. Have you ever watched a daytime talk show? And a Christian is on the daytime talk show? And they talk about, well, I'm religious and I, I love God. Oh, that's wonderful. And they'll clap. This is glorious. Oh, yes, God is important. And then someone says, and we've seen this in the life of Tim Tebow, I believe Jesus is the only way. And they begin to hiss. They begin to yell. They begin to become angry. Why? It's not that they didn't like Jesus before. It is when we identify Jesus as the one and only. You see, they want to say, hey, he's one of many. He's a prophet. The world's largest religion respects Jesus. That's Islam. Islam respects Jesus. One of the most revered prophets in all of its religion. He is on the par of Moses, second only to Muhammad, the greatest and last of the prophets. And so a billion of our inhabitants of this world would say, we like Jesus as long as you keep him as a prophet. Keep him on the same playing field as all others. Number two, they realign him as a partner. They realign him as a partner. Notice in verses 22 and 24, Paul sees, listen, you're willing to give Jesus a place. You're giving him a spot in the temple. He's okay to be on the same level of all other gods. He's given an opportunity. But listen, Jesus, you can't go any higher. You can't be any better. You can't be any greater. And so our culture says, listen, you can have Jesus. He just can't be better than anybody else. Because the second that he's better than, someone, than, than all others, you become intolerant. You become bigoted. You become one who uh, is fanatical. Just as in Athens, the Athenians realigned Jesus as a partner, and so does our culture today. How about they relegate him to the past? Tell us about what your God did. Greek mythology was all about what the gods did in the past, never what they did in the present or in the future. Their stories were built on fables that took place long ago. And so whatever we knew about Apollo, whatever we knew about Zeus, were things that happened in the past. But Paul says, listen, Jesus is alive, Jesus is moving, and he is active, and he says in the text that he has fixed a day where he will bring judgment on the earth. Jesus is active and he's moving. And the Athenians say, listen, this is babbling because our gods are gods of the past. Have you ever had a discussion with someone where they'll say, listen, Jesus was good in his time. Jesus' words can be understood within his context, but not today. He lived 2,000 years ago. What can we learn from a man who lived in Nazareth 2,000 years ago? So we will put him in the past. He was a great man, but he's a dead man. And so we can revere him. We can celebrate him. But we celebrate him as we do all of our great presidents and great generals and great leaders of the day who are consigned to history. They were great in their day, but they are no longer great. Our world realigns him not only as a partner, but they relegate Jesus to the past. Or maybe this, they reassign him to one people group. Verse 30, they say, listen, Paul, hey, you've brought in this foreign deity. Who is this guy? Uh, he says in verse 18, you, who are you talking about? You, this is your God, your God of your people. And I'm amazed today that people, you'll talk about Jesus. You'll tell people that Jesus is the one and only. 
And what will the response be? Well, that's good for you. I'm glad Jesus works for you. I'm glad Jesus fits for you. I'm glad Jesus makes you happy. But he doesn't make me happy. Jesus doesn't take care of my problems. And so you can go your way and I'll go my way. Just as the Athenians said, listen, tell us about your God. He's not our God, but you can tell us about your God because we enjoy hearing that. Our people today will say, tell me about your religious experience with your God. And when you're done, as long as you keep it as your God, they're fine. It's the second that, as Paul does, as the second he says, he's calling all men everywhere to repent. Now we've got a problem. Wait a minute, your Jesus, your God is telling me to repent? I don't think so. He's not my God. So I want you to notice today that just in the days of Athens, we see Jesus being redefined as a prophet. We see Jesus being realigned as a partner. We see Jesus being relegated to the past. And we see Jesus being reassigned to one people group. It may work for you, but it doesn't work for me. And as long as we coexist in this way, everything is fine. But I want you to know this morning that Jesus is never content with being enthroned with other gods and mythical leaders. The scriptures are quite clear that Jesus is far higher and greater than any other. Jesus is without rival. He is not worried about any contention because there is no one like Jesus Christ. And that then leads us to examine the second question. Where do we stand? Where do we stand on this issue of sola Christus? You see, the, Bible, the, the church was one day bold about this. But now we've gotten kind of loosey-goosey, if you will, about where we're at. We don't want to ruffle feathers. We don't want to get people angry. But we need to understand the Bible that we hold, the Bible that we say, as Pastor uh, Phil is preaching at my campus today, is our final authority, tells us a very different picture about Jesus. It declares something very different about who Jesus is. I want you to write these down. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus isn't just a messenger, but he's Messiah. John 20, 31, I'll just turn these passages, you can write them down. John 20, 31 says the following about Jesus. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing him, you may have life in his name. Jesus is not a, just a messenger, but he's a Messiah. Notice he's not just a servant, but he's Savior. John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus tells Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus isn't this one who just came and, and washed his disciples' feet and told everybody to get along with one another and sing kumbaya around a campfire. Jesus wasn't the one who simply said, you know, love your neighbor and all these golden rules. Jesus said, listen, I've been sent by God. I've been sent by God to save sinners just like you. Jesus isn't just a servant, but he's Savior. Notice, Jesus isn't just a good man, he's the God-man. Jesus isn't just a good man, he is a good man, but it, that would be far too little to say about him. He's the God-man. John chapter 1, verse 14, says that uh, we have beheld the glory, 
the glory of the one and only who the one who put on flesh and made his dwelling among us Jesus sent by the father to redeem people not as a martyr not as a prophet but as the second person of the Trinity the eternal son of God he's not just a good man the Bible says he's the God man he isn't just a prophet but he's the Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 tells us the following. Hundreds of years prophesying ahead of time of who this Savior would be. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He's the Prince of Peace. The eternal one who brings peace to the world. Notice Jesus isn't one way to God, but the only way to God. John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one. That's a pretty declarative statement, isn't it? No one. Not a single person. There's no other second opportunity. No one can come to the Father, to God, except through me. Anybody who says, I like Jesus as a teacher, he was a loving man, is very intolerant. He's the only way, he says. But notice, Jesus isn't just a name. He's the only name. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 reminds us that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Do you see why sola Christus is not just a statement the reformers came up with, but it is out, it's all throughout Holy Scriptures? The Bible speaks totally and utterly exclusive statements about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the world can reject it. The world can call it narrow-minded. The world can say that it doesn't apply to them today. But listen, it does and it will, whether in this life or in the life to come. Jesus is the one and only. This flies in the face of all contemporary thinking. To say that Jesus is the only way to heaven is nothing short of intellectual suicide. People will mock you. They will despise you for that truth. But listen, if we pretend that Jesus is not, then we don't believe in Jesus at all. If we don't understand and hold this doctrine as true and right, then we have no backbone for which our Christianity will stand. So the question is this morning, where does it send us? Where does it send us? What do we do to do with this belief in sola Christus? Is it something we can simply say, what do you believe? I believe in Christ alone. I can sing that and affirm that. But I will tell you, it's not something we can simply just say and not respond. There's application to this. 
Think of it this way. If we truly believe that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only way to God the Father is through him, then why aren't we telling the world about it? Why aren't we grieved? Why aren't we looking at the world with all of their gods and stop and say, no, I I am compelled to preach the gospel, as Paul said. I want you to notice some things in our text this morning before I close. Where does it send us? If we truly believe in Christ alone, that he is the only way, the only truth, and only life, The questions we have to ask will determine if we really believe what we say we do. Number one, am I provoked? Am I provoked? Notice in verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 6, verse 6 of chapter 17. It says that, I'm, I'm wrong twice, it's verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. Why was it provoked? It was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That word provoke literally means a convulsive type of response of agitation that leads to action. It isn't just he's mad, but he's being spurred on to do something. Well, why was he spurred on? Paul knew that Christ was the only way, and he sees this major city in ancient days full with idols and people worshiping them. And his spirit is undone because he says these people are going to hell because they're worshiping something that is not God. Paul saw that all that Athens contained and thought to himself, they're all lost. They need someone to show them the way. Listen, are we praying for this kind of provocation in our own spirit? When we watch our neighbors filling their lives with idols, are we provoked to walk across the the yard to speak to them about Jesus being the only way? Or are we willing and content to let them die in their unbelief and in their rejection? This has been the prayer that Amanda and I have prayed for our community in Hinckley. We see the gods of Hinckley. We see the gods of money, the gods of sex, the gods of pleasure and possessions, all the different gods that we have. We may not have them in statues and temples. We have them in our garages and we have them in our homes. We have them in our bank accounts. And those same little gods are going to send people to hell. And are we provoked like another reformer, John Owen, said, when he said, give me Scotland, my homeland, or I'll die. Are we provoked because we believe truly that Christ alone means that apart from Jesus, no one will be saved. Number two, are we present? Verse 17 and 18. It goes on and it says that, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So he went to them. If Jesus is alone, our answer, then we have to go to them because they're lost. If we have found the answer, then we need to go and we need to take them and say, I have found the one. Remember the woman at the well? She met Jesus, and she didn't say, well, I'm going to hang here with Jesus. She went into her community and brought her community to Jesus. Come hear what I've heard. Come see what I've seen. Come be a part of what I've been a part of. Come with me. Am I present in the community? Do I know my neighbor? Do I know my community enough that I know the kind of gods that they're pursuing? 
He gave them opportunities to present themselves. What we do is we write off our neighbors. They're sinners. They're contaminated. We have to stay away from them. Paul doesn't. Paul engages them. Tell me about it. You're religious in every way. You got all kinds of worship. He doesn't, he doesn't disparage them. He asks questions. He talks with them. He's present with them. Notice he's peaceable, verses 18 and 19. He doesn't badmouth. He doesn't yell at them. He converses. He had a dialogue with them. He used some of their own poets. He says, listen, I've heard that some of your own poets say we are the offspring of God. Let's talk about this. Let's engage in this. Let's have a conversation. And he did as what Peter tells the church in 1 Peter 3.15 to present our hope in Jesus Christ, but to do so in a peaceable and respectful way. He says, let's have a conversation. Let me give you the reason for the hope that I have in Christ Jesus. Are you preaching? Are you preaching? In verses 18 and 22, it says, Standing amidst a group of pagans, he stood and said, God is not just a God of a time or a space. Jesus is not consigned to a past period of time. But he's alive and well. He's been raised from the dead, and now he's calling all people to repent. You know, a lot of times we'll say, I will simply just live a good life amongst my neighbors, but I'll never tell them about Jesus. Listen, you living a good life will never get that person into heaven. Oh, it's a good start. It cultivates the ground. But think about this. The farmers can cultivate. They can till the ground over and over and over again. But until they put seed in the ground, no harvest will come. And a lot of us are saying, you know, I'll just live a good life. I'll bake cookies for them. I'll help mow the grass. I'll, I'll uh, uh, sweep their uh, driveway or their patio. I'll shovel it when snow comes. I'll do all these nice things. They'll have never have a greater neighbor than me. And that's how I'm going to win them to Jesus. No, you'll never win them to Jesus unless you preach the gospel. That you tell them they're lost and they're in need of a Savior. Are you preaching? You see, God may not have called you to Athens but as he called you to Waterman, Shabana, Lee, Earlville, Hinckley, DeKalb, our neighbors need Jesus, just as the men of Athens needed Jesus. And we need to follow Paul's example and Jesus' command to go into the world and preach the good news to all that we can. Finally, are you prepared? I love that the Bible isn't a fairy tale. Had I written it on Mr. Exaggeration, this is what I would have said. I would have said, and Paul preached and everyone came to know Jesus. Hallelujah, let's close in prayer. But that's not what happened. Notice there are three responses, and I want you to write these down because they will inevitably be the three responses that may happen to you as you go out and are provoked by your spirit and by the spirit of God to go and reach your neighbors by being present, by being peaceable and preaching. Paul does it all right. But there are three responses. The first response is that some rejected. They called him an idle babbler. They mocked him, it says later in the text in verse 32, that they mocked his teaching of the resurrection of the dead. There will be some, when you preach and, and do so in a wonderful way, they'll mock you. They'll disparage you. They'll say, get that garbage out of here. And what you need to do is you need to stop you need to pray for them and look for new opportunities and new venues and vantage points to teach the scriptures to them. But there's a second group of people. 
and those were receptive. They didn't reject, but they didn't receive, but they were in the middle. They were receptive. Notice in the text it says, but others, verse 32, said, we will hear you again about this. We're intrigued. We're not sure what to make of it, but we'll listen. Can I tell you that I have never been outright rejected in the preaching of God's word and the proclamation of the gospel? No one's ever beat me up. No one's ever fired me from any jobs or kicked me out of things. And I've presented the gospel in all different places, from the public school and community events, all the way down to a neighbor uh, in a lawn chair. And I've never had anybody outright just say, get this garbage out of here. How dare you? Uh, I don't ever want to see you again. But what I get a lot of is, interesting. That was good. I'll think about that. They're receptive. I think far more than we would ever come to realize are more receptive to the gospel than we give them credit for. And we need to be open to spending more and more time with them. It is said that you need to present the gospel somewhere in the neighborhood of seven times before someone will truly understand and believe. And we need to be proactive in that. And we need to keep planting seed more and more as we plant seed, knowing that not all of it is going to fall on fertile ground. And so we keep cultivating, we keep planting. But there's a final group, and this is a group that should bring joy to our hearts. There were some who received. Verse 34. So, but, but by the way, verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst. He doesn't push it. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't fight them. He waits for another opportunity. But then notice, but some men joined him and believed. And we are told that some, the idea here is a group of men did, and he names three people, two men and one woman, and then it says, and others with them. He preaches. Some say, we don't like it. You're a babbler. You're, you're lost your mind. Others say, hey, we'll hear you again. Come back sometime. Let's talk about it. And then we hear a group of people that come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Listen, if we believe in Christ alone, then we must be compelled to preach Christ because our neighbors and our family and our friends have no other option. There's nothing for them but Jesus and Jesus alone. Sola Christus was the rallying cry of the Reformation and it must be sounded again in our churches and in our hearts. It's not something we can just say that we believe. It must lead us to do that. Are we provoked? Are we preaching? Are we present? Are we peaceable? Are we prepared? We have one hope in this world, brothers and sisters. That hope is in Jesus Christ. That's why we preach him alone. How can you find Jesus? How can you find God? I'm sorry, Jesus is the answer. How can you find peace? Jesus is the answer. How can you be forgiven of your sins? Jesus is the answer. How can you find eternal life? Jesus is the answer. How can you have an open door to heaven? Jesus is the answer. Who can get rid of your guilt? Jesus can. Who can save a sinner like you? Jesus can. Who can bring this world back together? Jesus can. And that's why the hymn writer put it this way. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when striving cease. He's my comforter, he's my all in all. Here in the love of Christ, I stand. We affirm 
And we stay committed to sola Christus because there is no other answer in this world. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Paul and how he preached the good news, the good news that Jesus alone is the Savior for men's souls. Lord, I pray you would ignite in our heart a new reformation that would see that if we truly believe that you are the one and only answer, that we would begin to share it with all others. That we would find ways and opportunities and avenues to present it. Lord, give us the wisdom and discernment how to do so in a peaceable way. Provoke in our spirit a desire to be present within our communities, present within the lives of our family and friends and neighbors, so that we might be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Oh, the, the cards at times may feel stacked against us. We may hear people talk about tolerance. We may hear people talk about uh, being inclusive. But Lord, let us never forfeit the gospel for the sake of tolerance or being inclusive. Let us be wholly exclusive when it comes to the claims of Christ. Let us be wholly intolerant to allow anybody to share the stage with you. Lord, I pray in the years and the decades, Lord, in the centuries to come, that Village Bible Church will stand and affirm in Christ alone because we have no other answer but you. Thank you that our hope can be built on you. Thank you that our faith can be placed upon you. Thank you that uh, we can experience your love and the love of your Father through you, Christ, his Son. Now, Lord, let us leave here in the fellowship of one another. Let us carry and lift up one another's burdens. Let us be reminded of your love and laying down your life for us as we bear one another's burdens and lay our lives down for each other. We thank you for what you've taught us today through song, through words of encouragement, and through your word. Now send us forth in your peace and in your love that we might be a church that reaches the lost with the only gospel that Christ alone saves sinners like you and me. We love you and give you the glory for it all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen.